how do people find the best CPO roles? That takes networks and foundations and tips and tricks and kind of inside channels and back channel. Like, how does it work? You must be prepared with each meeting that you have. So if I were networking for a Uh, you know, with a public company, for instance, I would get in and I would read a 10K and I would read the management discussion and analysis, Mm -hmm. MD&A. I watch videos on the company. Look at the tone and tenor of the executives. Do you like them? Do you want to spend time with them? I would also probably look at Medium. I would look at Twitter. I would look at their website, look at their value set, their culture, their voice. Do you like it? If you've Googled and you found out that there are 20 talent partners that you want to get to know and you understand what your value add is, you've got your resume together or your LinkedIn profile is, you know, articulating that as well, then you can even just reach out over Twitter. You can reach out over LinkedIn. Mm. I bring these skills to the table. Someone will respond right away. Um, If you show up and it is a message that says, hey, I want to get to know you. I'm looking for a job. We're likely to just hit delete. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. We have an awesome show for you on tap today. We have Elizabeth Patterson, who is the partner and head of human capital at Sapphire Ventures. We talked to her a ton about how venture capital talent partners actually work, what it's like engaging with portfolio companies and execs, and then obviously tapping into Kelly and Elizabeth's longstanding relationship. You're going to love this episode, so please like, subscribe, and share with your friends. Without further ado, here's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here today. I am proud to call you one of my closest work colleagues and friend. We are so excited to chat with you around just your experience being a partner, people and talent in various venture firms, including Wildcat and now Sapphire for almost six years, Mm -hmm. as well as an advisor and independent director across the board. Thank you for joining us. This is like very free flowing. KD could take me anywhere (laughs) and I trust her. So I'll let you guys go and have fun. I will have plenty of stories. Those might be more interesting if I have stories and data for a listener versus kind of fluff. Pretty great stories from over the years. I'm, I i cannot touch Colleen and, and Patty, but I'll have some good stories. AP, you've seen some stuff, so I've, you, you I've can. I've seen some good stuff. What, yeah. what are, um, just, anyway, just so we, are there any big stories that you were like, oh my God, I want to tell this, like the world needs to hear this story? That's probably a lot. Um, I mean, I could give you a few that are fun. I couldn't necessarily give you all the grit because the company um, is a big public company, but they did have a CRO who was using company money to buy prostitutes and drugs. And the sales development rep in EA and multiple people that I knew at that company 
came forward and said, hey, you might have a problem over here. Uh, you should just be aware of this. And the company was poised to go public. Um, and we are in the business of risk mitigation as a venture firm. That's what we're all about so that we can deliver value financially for our LPs. So when you hear something like that, you have to think, how do I mitigate that risk? So that was a really interesting story. I just want to make sure that I don't expose anyone on that. But it was a very interesting story. And I worked really closely with a CEO who never admitted anything, but took care of it and moved that person into a VP of EMEA role and then out of the company and moved head of sales in. And that was probably six months before IPO. Yeah. Holy and shit. that they was kept a situation the where I <laughs> they, they They kept the person because they had already filed their S1. It was public that they were going up and out. And the optics of losing a CRO yes. after you have filed are serious. And so they did not want to damage their position with a street and impact their strike price as they're going out. So they moved him to a different role. And very quickly, they moved someone into a uh, CRO role. And we never talked about it. I'm still very close to that CEO. He scaled that company to $20 billion in valuation. And I think he would do... I want to say almost anything for me, but it was sort of unspoken. I've identified an issue here. You might need to work on this. I'm not going to say anything, trusting that you will. And that's how you build rapport sometimes with your CEOs. Holy shit, Where you're looking Elizabeth. around corners yeah. for them. Yeah. That's a, that is one story. It's probably But me. building rapport with your CEO through mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And trust. So and trust. That CEO is definitely legendary, and there'd be there'd be lots of stories like this where you know it's not often that you ask a question about fear, and you said is you know are people lonely? Not fear. You said are, are the CEOs lonely? And I said yeah. I got sometimes no one to talk to. They can't talk to their executive team because they have to appear strong. Can't talk to their board because. They need to appear strong. Where do they go? And, and during COVID, I have plenty of CEOs that cried, you know, to me on the phone, over Zoom, face to face, because they weren't sure how they were going to get through it. You uh, might, in a lot of ways, be a more safe place than even some of their HR leaders. The story I tell myself with talent partners is every time I talk yep. to a talent partner, everything I'm saying to that person is going back to the general partner. That's not true. That's not true. So this is this is really good. This is where it, it differs by, I mean, like anything, it differs by talent partner, it differs by VC, it differs by company. I'm just saying, and we just talked about this with Steve Cadigan, that some HR leaders, they don't use powers for good. They're not trustworthy, right? The two products he said were judgment and credibility. And when that's not there, and you have a talent partner and a VC that happens to have that, meaning not Elizabeth, like, I mean, sorry, Elizabeth, but if they're glorified exec recruiters and they run around, it's the same principle, right? There are talent partners that have powers for good and powers for other. When you have someone like Elizabeth, it's just a no brainer 
they can go to her. And so you're seeing her as a business partner. How do you not view that line, a Elizabeth? Or a recruiter? Because that's a, you wear many talent partners wear many hats. And the this, the thing I always say is talent partners have many masters. You have the GPs, you have the portfolio CEOs, uh, you have the execs on on the portfolio company team. How do you view navigating that? I think you understand your audience. You understand the business issue that each of them is trying to solve. And, uh, you know, are they trying to mitigate risk, delight their employees, delight customers? They're trying to bring down operating costs. They're trying to increase revenue. Who are you talking to? And then you're addressing that audience specific to what their needs are versus yours all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. I would gather that sometimes that's a hard line to walk. Right? You're there to support these founders and help them build their companies with full mm -hmm. trust. Mm -hmm. But you have investors, partners in the firm that you are a peer to that you're trying to get a return. What happens when those things can't be reconciled? First of all, I would say Sapphire um, never stands over our CEOs, our founders, our executive teams. We sort of walk alongside them. We are almost like a Sherpa as they're journeying and we're carrying their bags and we are ensuring their success. Sapphire is measured on NPS. I'm measured on NPS, that's my biggest biggest uh, measure. Um, at the same time, I work inside a venture firm that wants to mitigate risk. So yep. you straddle a line of building trust with both parties and ensuring when information puts your investment at deep risk or puts the employees at deep risk. And there are times where I will hear something, I'll listen, and I'll sift through that information and sort of let it float away. And there are other times where I might need to say, um, I need to bring this to your attention because you know we're in a situation where we're not compliant or uh, we put the firm at risk, we put that investment at risk, and I would share that with our partners. So it's knowing what information to bring forward when you must, and then what information at times you can just keep between yourself and a you know C-level exec, a founder, um, and yourself. Judgment. Mm -hmm. to, to Elizabeth's point about being Sherpas to their companies and their business leaders. EP, you've been in venture for, I don't know, a little over 10 years now. Mm -hmm. I, I know there's a lot of founders, business leaders, CHROs like yourself, even myself mm -hmm. one day that might want to hop in, hang out and work in a VC one day. And it, it's confusing to a lot of people at right? the venture world. There's thousands mm -hmm. of VC. What, what are the different personalities like, right? What are the gotchas or the ahas on choosing to be a part of one VC versus another in certain ways. And, and what does success look like as a talent choosing... partner? Okay, so first I will say, how do you navigate and find the best opportunity if you wanna get into venture? And then, then I'll go through success metrics for you. When I started my journey coming out of a go-to-market background into venture 10 plus years ago, um, you know, I knew a lot <laughs> less than I do today. I think so much of the joy in your job is dependent on who those partners are and your level of access, your ability to create change, your ability to drive value directly with those portfolio companies and with your partners. 
Uh, Sapphire Adventures is incredibly flat. We all sort of row the ship as one. So uh, at Sapphire, what was so appealing to me here is that um, I could walk into any partner's office any time of day, and we were all striving towards um, building companies of consequence together. So it wasn't the investors and everybody else and the investors at the top of the pyramid and everybody else below. It was all of us, a very flat organization. Also, I have seen at some venture firms where each partner has their own fiefdom of portfolio companies, mm. their own uh, vision, mission, goals uh, for those portfolios, and there isn't an overarching mission, vision, goals that is, um, I think, so important. So it was almost like a real estate brokerage where you had a brand, but everybody had their own goals. That's really hard because if you're a talent partner and you're working with 10 CEOs or how, however many uh, partners that you have, uh, and you don't have clarity in terms of what the overarching goal is and in terms of what success looks like, and you don't have access, very hard to be successful. Very hard to be successful. Here, I would say, um, and this isn't a sapphire pitch overall, but part of what makes a venture firm great is, you know, when you have sort of a warrior spirit together, I'll use that that term, where you care deeply about the success of your founders and their teams, your portfolio. So the fact that we uh, measured NPS was really awesome, right? Versus just thinking about returns. That was a little less me um, because I want to leave the world in a better place than I found it. You ask about success metrics. I look at three things overall at Sapphire. Um, one is our portfolio and their success. We also look at, I mean, really quantitatively, we look at um, the number of introductions that we're making. We look at um, how often we touch the portfolio companies. So believe it or not, across talent and my colleagues in business development and revenue excellence and capital markets and marketing, we are constantly monitoring how often we're touching our portfolio mm -hmm. companies so that they're supported at all times. If there is a gap in talent, maybe I, I haven't been able to drive success in terms of aligning an executive with an opportunity that drives to a full-time hire. Uh, I need to know that my colleagues, to include the investors and members of por portfolio growth, have touched that company. So we are always in touch, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Um, other success metrics, I would say, um, you know, it is um, it's about helping on the talent side. It's about building a quality network, not just quantity. Um, we are less focused on transactions. We are very focused on building companies of consequence. I'm not a retained recruiter. I'm a hell of right. a connector. The firm cheers when, you know, we make a connection. When we put 12 or 13 people into Pendo, they love mm. it. Right. When when we build out that leadership team, those success metrics we would look at also um, for the role. We we work with pipeline companies and in the investment. Mm -hmm. And so have we helped them with mm. more deals? What have we done to help them position Sapphire, align Sapphire with an incoming potential portfolio company? 
That might include meeting with prospective CEOs. That might include potentially making introductions, sharing tools with them, frameworks for success, um, case studies, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's super interesting. Hey, everyone. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. There's a world where your CRM is powerful, easily configured, and deeply intuitive. Adio makes that a reality. Adio is a radically new CRM built specifically for the new era of companies. It's flexible, easily configures to your unique data structures, and works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Adio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendar, lets you create powerful reports, and quickly builds Zapier-style automations. The next era of companies deserves more than a one-size-fits-all CRM with outdated UX. Join OpenAI, Replicate, Eleven Labs, and more. Try Adio instantly at adio.com. That's A-T-T-I-O.com. And tell them Nolan and Kelly from HR Heretics say you. I'd like love to shift EP to, to the chief people officer role and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. Nolan and I and you, we talk to a lot of HR leaders, right? We want to work for the best companies. We want to find the next, you know, unicorn or high growth of a great management team. How, how do people find the best CPO roles? How do you find the best like leaders, right? That, that is not something you just kind of open up the rack and then filter resumes that takes, yeah. networks and foundations and tips and tricks and kind of inside channels and back channel like how does it work so you know one thing that i would say is you must you know you must be prepared with each meeting that you have so i almost would liken it to being in enterprise software sales which is where i have my roots um and at one point in time i had 10 target accounts in um you know, in, in my patch, so to speak. And, um, and if I didn't hit quota, I would have been let go. So yeah. every single meeting and interaction had to, I had to hit a first, a second, a third, I had to close business. And you do, if you're looking for great companies. So instead of just showing up to an interview without doing that homework, I think that, you know, you must, I say this, like network with purpose, but be prepared. So if I were networking for a uh, you know, with a public company, for instance, I would get in and I would read a 10K and I would read the management discussion and analysis, mm -hmm. MD&A. I would, um, that's one of my secrets that I do with any public company, anybody that's interfacing with a public company, it tells you a wealth of knowledge. Um, I watch videos on the company. I, uh, you know, look at the tone and tenor of the executives. Do you like them? Do you want to spend time with them? I would also probably look at Medium. I would look at Twitter. I would look at their website, look at their value set, their culture, their voice. Do you like it? Does that mm -hmm. align with how you want to spend your time? Because we spend an awful lot of time in work. So once I've kind of decided maybe, hmm, this is the sector of interest for me, Here's where I think I can drive the most impact. So go to the venture firms. It's really easy to Google growth stage venture firm. Really easy to Google, um, uh, you know, cloud 100 companies, let's say. Put all that together. Put it in a spreadsheet. Understand what they're talking about. So when you reach out to them, you're leveraging their language. 
Every single interaction has to be a single, a double, a triple, or you're just wasting a lot of time. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, having a point of view is half the battle, right? I mean, selecting yourself out is just as important as in. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you is like, figure out what you're optimizing for. Yeah. Yeah. Figure out where you can add unique value and then go be very intentional with your outreach. Mm -hmm. And that actually includes Mm -hmm. reaching out to people like you. I'm curious, how do candidates engage you? So say I'm on the market right now. I've I've done the first Mm -hmm. two things. I know where I want to be and where I can add unique value. How, how do the best candidates engage you as a talent partner? So I would say they are specific. So you've, you've articulated your superpowers in what capacity, you know why you, you've Googled and you found out that um, there are 20 talent partners that you want to get to know. And you understand what your value add is. You've got your resume together or your LinkedIn profile is, is you know, articulating that as well. Then you can even just reach out over Twitter. You can reach out over LinkedIn mm. and you can say, I've been on your website. I found this company. It's called Pendo. I love what they're doing. I've seen Todd, you know, speak at his his last company. And here's where where I think I can drive impact. I noticed that, you know, the company, you can run analytics on, on LinkedIn. I noticed that the company is growing at a rate of X percent and um, that you've messaged around, uh, you know, the, the, the following um, buyers and, you know, or, or the, um, uh, you know, your messaging around diversity, equity, inclusion, I bring these skills to the table. Someone will respond right away. Um, if you show up and it is a message that says, hey, I want to get to know you, uh, I'm looking for a job, we're likely to just hit delete. Um, and I hate to say that, but I think that, again, network with purpose Um if you are going to get to know a a talent partner, then you have a great meeting with that talent partner. Kelly comes in, she meets with me. I'm so enthusiastic about her that if I don't have the right opportunity for her in my portfolio, I turn around and I go tell my friends who are partners at other venture firms that we want to find a job for Kelly or I help tell my favorite retained recruiters that specialize Mm -hmm. in people leadership roles only how fabulous she is because I want to help her as a human and I may not have an opportunity for her, but I want to do what's right by the candidate. Mm -hmm. I love that. I don't think people realize how small the world is once you become a VP because what you just said, I think is a really interesting insight for the audience that they probably don't understand. You are connected to all of the exec recruiters. And so when somebody reaches out to you and if you have a positive interaction, your first instinct is how can I help our portfolio? But then your second instinct is, Mm -hmm. is like maybe this person could actually be helpful to the executive recruiters I know. Talk a little bit about the exec recruiter Mm -hmm. and talent partner relationship. Yes. So when I first got into the business, it was about identifying all the players in various geographies or who had functional expertise, industry expertise, who aligned to certain geographies. Um, And I created a pretty um, vast list, many, 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 many partners in order to um, save time and ensure that you're going to have the best results. I've narrowed that list down over the years. And we now have what I would call a 
preferred vendor list. And those are people that will take our calls. Even if they are nearing capacity, we'll get at the top of the queue because we have worked with them. They know what to expect between a talent partner and a um uh, you know, recruiter and a portfolio company exec. So I'll share a story with you because this is a fun one. Um, and it does relate to Pendo. I'm using Pendo yeah. a lot as an example because, Kelly, you're here. Um, you uh, were in the market for a new CRO. Um, Pendo has scaled. Yes. We started at $20 million when Sapphire invested um, years ago. You were looking for a new CRO. And um, many go-to-market leaders have actually retired in this market They're, or sitting it out because it's a it's a you know, kind of tumultuous market. So it's hard to find CXOs and particularly great revenue leaders. Um, we had our retained recruiter fly up from Los Angeles. I had your partner, mm -hmm. Jen Reddick, come to Sapphire. And for a half day, and I know that's a long time, we worked to exhaust our networks to uh, bounce ideas off each other, to ensure that we had the right skill set if we were bouncing ideas off of each other. Did anybody have feedback on particular candidates? Mm -hmm. And if someone had been ungettable, so to speak, to the retained recruiting partner, who's fabulous, and to JR, I might have an inroad. So we sat there and we identified who they hadn't been able to get to and who we could get to. And we worked as a trio to move forward to a positive outcome yep. with a, a, a CRO yep. fairly quickly. You can't do that all the time because you may not touch every single search. But on the go-to-market side where Sapphire is extremely strong, we do it uh, with some regularity, and that would be a stellar example. Yeah. I mean, EP, do you, do you think that exec recruiters drive real value? I feel like it, it, it has been a thing out there. There's a lot of them, <laughs> right? We tend to have great experiences with some, not great with others, but right? you're shepherding some. Like, what? How do you think about that overall? Because sometimes I, I'm honestly torn. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this was a lifesaver. And other times this was a complete waste of money. Yeah. So I think that there are some recruiters who during the boom time raised their rates from yeah. 100K to 350K. Um, 350? Yeah. Uh, and, and more than one. Um, I, <sighs> I think that is borderline... Criminal. Well, yes, yes, I do. Uh, and I, um, so in that case, is it worth it? Is there value still there? What, what, what was valuable at 150? Is it there at 350? I don't know. I think if you have the right retained recruiter that um, understands the scale where you are, understands your revenue motion, um, you know, if you're a, a, a PLG focused company or a commercially focused company and you have a retained recruiter that's only sold into the enterprise, well, maybe that's not a great fit. Yeah, yeah. I think that always with retained recruiters, there's some exceptional partners there. And there are others that, um, you know, I think are less valuable. Yeah. Shall we say. You know, Do it's you funny. Think I always go ahead. Go ahead, Katie. I, I always like listen for in the beginning with a new retained search partner if they're asking about the culture and the vibe and how we get work done just as much as the business mm -hmm. and a lot don't 
which is really interesting, right? And I bet you can correlate that with Oregon rejection in some of these exact placements. So I can. You know, there's some firms that will do bait and switch as well. So you've got a partner that's going in, more business development focus. They're closing the business, and then you don't see them again. They've got their yeah. junior team who are less business savvy that are interacting with you on a day-to-day. And maybe that's okay for you, but if this is a critical search for your business, you better know that you have the right partner in seat. Um, We had produced some years ago a document that really helps our portfolio company navigate how to negotiate and ensure that you have the right retained recruiter, um, ensure that you have the right uh, guarantees, ensure that uh, you're not interested and intrigued with partnering uh, with a retained recruiter who's worked with your competition only to find out that there's a non-compete there. And so you've just signed a $150,000, $200,000 contract to retain them and to work with them. And you want them to go after a specific ecosystem. Those are already their clients and they can't recruit from wow. that ecosystem. You better know that. I had I never that considered that. P- is that public? I'd pay money for that cheat sheet. I was just going to say, have you guys published that? <laughs> I have it. If somebody came to me and asked me for it, I would certainly we share We are doing that right now and would love to include that in the show notes. That's but gold. You know, I, 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 In my venture experience, I haven't had a, a VC say, hey, here's a how-to guide on how to hire a good firm. That's, That's very so cool. rare. I, talk to me about a lot of companies are being very cash conscious today. Sure. and are trying to mm-hmm. actually run these searches themselves. How are you yeah. advising companies that are coming to you saying, I-, I think we want to run this one ourselves? So we do see this. And I would tell you that um, over the last year to 18 months, we have seen more and more CEOs uh, first engage with the board. So they'll say, I've got a a CRO search that, um, you know, we need to kick off. Can we exhaust your network in terms of who you think is best in class here? We're interested in even having meetings with best in class CROs so that we understand what it looks like. What should we be striving for? That executive team or the the co-founders might spend then three months looking for candidates from that network. In some cases, they've let their go-to-market teams and their people leadership teams go. Those have been pretty decimated. So they don't have a JR, a Kelly at the helm any longer. And they're trying to do this on their own Mm. and run a best practice for critical roles. Um, If they have a partner like a Sapphire, we we have tools that we share. We have a microsite for go-to-market roles uh, that, that would help to ensure their success, we would have lists of retained recruiters. And we had this happen recently. Um, I'll say to the CEO, listen, what is the date that we are going to carve out in the sand? So here we are today. It's the 31st of October. If we are unsuccessful as a board, in how many days should we then say, we're not going to be successful here and go to search? Because the longer we go, the more risk uh, we enter as as a team here, Elizabeth. The role of back channels in these searches—it's quite—it's quite a topic. I think right now you said you have ninety plus VP and above searches going on 
across right. Sapphire. Yeah. Um, and in my time, you Nolan as well. I mean, the back channels can be just catch on like wildfire, right? It can be very sometimes dangerous, but also very useful. I'd love to know your take on back channels. Yeah. So, so first of all, I am, I think they can be powerful if you have a direct line. Well, well I'll start with, with how do you control these? Because you could right. have 20 candidates in a search or more, and uh, you need to make sure that your entire day isn't spent back channeling any candidate that comes into the top of the funnel, so to speak. So I will share with the CEOs directly. I, I often work with the CEOs and, and uh, CHROs and SVPs of talent, but I'll say to the CEOs, as I did with one CEO just this week, we are happy to um, help you reference check your shortlisted candidates in this process when we have a direct line of communication into someone that has worked with them and has worked with them you know in recent years right because people change over time people evolve and what i think it's really dangerous with back channels not only the volume if you have a ceo in this market that is asking you to jump in and help on these searches but if you're back channeling every single executive, you may be burning out your network mm -hmm. too. And that's not good. So burning out your network for a candidate that never moves forward. So um, I really, I, I do ask that, uh, you know, let's get down to that short list and yep. let's ensure that we have a direct line in uh, because I think that back channels can be really dangerous if you are just considering, you know, sort of market data on someone mm -hmm. without um, real direct experience. How do you think about negative back channels, Elizabeth? And how does that factor in as part of a hiring decision? Because execs sometimes are very polarizing. So I'm going to give you a story here. Um, we had a chief product officer candidate. It's been a few years at a company. I was asked to do the forensic referencing on the candidate. I actually knew where the candidate had worked. I knew his CEO, I knew his CXOs. And I went to them and said, you know, what was it like working with, here's, here's what we're solving for. I also have a list of reference questions that I always ask and um, we share with our portfolio companies too. Um, but I asked those reference questions and the feedback was polarizing plus. And uh, I, I sat down with my investor. I shared it with my investor as well as the CEO. And I said, you know, may I put you in touch with his former CEO so that you can hear this from the former CEO? I think we've got some risk here with this candidate. And um, in that situation, um, and I had quite a few references. I'm going to say between five and seven formally conducted references. Uh, that CEO decided to move forward despite all of that with the candidate. Two months later... Not a recommendation, by the way. Uh, two months later, um, that CEO came back to us and said, we had to make a change. We're, mm. we're back at square one again. So wow. we won't ever demand that someone not hire an executive. We'll give them the information. We'll let them make the decision. But the information in those reference checks is very clear. Um, and so, you know, I think if you get one negative reference check, it depends on what it is, mm -hmm. are ethics involved again? Uh, you know, does it, does it put ethics in question or um, was it the stage of company where someone wasn't 
quite right. Did they go too early? Did they go from a meta to a you know seed stage company? That might not work, and that reference might be negative. Um, but you sort of put it all together. You look yeah. at the full picture on a candidate, and and um, and then you share that with the mm -hmm. the founder and let them make their decision. Yep. Elizabeth, one last one last question on exec, real quick. Um, mm -hmm. What are you seeing with exec comp nowadays? I know that's a big bucket for you and you all provide so much value with that. The landscape has changed. But what are the levers that you're seeing are most important right now and some of the most touchiest levers with exec comp negotiations? Mm. Um, so I would say, again, you know, we probably spend the most time on go to market because we're a growth stage investment firm and then maybe GNA. Um, so I'm I'm, I'm not going to rattle off um, product and tech maybe here. I think for, first of all, it's, it's really important for um, the founder, the team to ask what's important to a candidate. Um, do they care deeply about equity because they've seen, you know, so much success in the past um, and they're willing to have a, a lower um, cash comp? Um you know, what is important to them? Do they, um, you know, do they want to have a sign-on bonus? Um, and so I think, first of all, asking them, mm -hmm. what, what what are the levers that are most meaningful for you? And then, you know, really trying to curate an offer based on their feedback is, is I think, uh, important and amazing. Yeah. And sometimes large companies, uh, you know, have less flexibility to do this. Certainly venture-backed startups do. Um, so in terms of compensation for that top 20%, those high achievers, um, at least in CRO, CMO comp, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, I would say the OTE comp is high. Um, and I'm seeing people that are um, really commanding top dollars. So even if the market has dropped, Overall, mm. they'll still have multiple yeah. offers. What I am seeing in terms of compensation is um, executives wanting to have, um, you know, more uh, decision-making power with change of control. So mm -hmm. you're seeing people that are mm. asking, you know, um, for and, and understanding double trigger, single trigger, early exercise. For sure. Um, you know, and I think this is because you have executives that – you know, may have been impacted by a reduction in force. And so they are really doing their homework. Some executives will say, can I get in your data room? Can I look at, um, you know, your finances and understand when you next need to fundraise? How much, you know, yeah. how much cash do you have before you have to fundraise in this market? Are, so, you, are you seeing tension? How are you counseling founders or hiring leaders on tensions with equity, right? When I say that, I mean... Executives valuation. are being hired now with the valuations dropping are expecting more to make up for that. What was a $12 and the parity in some of these C-suites is pretty dire with, with, with that, you know, with, with folks that were hired three, four years ago. It is, you know, honestly, uh, we retained a partner to help us specifically with this. Huh. We work with Sequoia um, and we have brought them in uh, to really um, align with our portfolio and to be a lifeline for them. Um, while, you know, I, I, I may be an incredible connector, I did not come out of, of total rewards. And so 
we um, have, you know, almost hotline internally where we can call them, our portfolio companies can call them and say, hey, we've got, you know, we've got this offer or we need to look at our overall um, compensation philosophy at this stage in our company's life cycle. Um, we need to do an equity refresh. And so we will engage the portfolio company directly with Sequoia as our partner. Yep. Um, and they have a partnership with Carta as the Sapphire um, on the equity side. And so we work together to ensure that our portfolio companies are putting out um, you know, very fair and attractive offers, both on the cash side and on the equity side, to attract and retain that top talent. Elizabeth, I have to ask you, you mentioned you have a photographic memory, which I think is incredible. How has that helped you in this job? It's bananas. Um, <laughs> it's the best. So um, I didn't know I had a photographic memory and I thought everybody's memories were like mine. Uh, I was I was recruited into this role coming out of a go-to-market role because I had the innate ability to sort of connect talent with opportunity, sometimes in really unique ways where the talent didn't even envision themselves in a role. And maybe I would uncover an aha with an executive and put them into a role where it was like one plus one is five. So getting back to that photographic memory, uh, I remember now it's years ago, 10 years ago, driving to work to my former firm, listening to a podcast. Malcolm Gladwell had a podcast called The Tipping Point at the time. They talked about mavens and something called the connector. And they listed a story of a CEO of Horchow um, who would meet people and he would gravitate towards unique in their backgrounds that would help him to remember them. And then he would make connections. And he um, really, you know, found joy from making meaningful connections in unexpected ways and energy uh, doing so. And there was a test in the book. And I was listening on audio. I came home. I ran that test. And they listed this Horchow exec as, you know, like best in class. And I blew him out of the water. And I thought, wow, this is weird. My parents, my brother all have that skill. Um, how does it help me in this role? I will remember unique skills, um, interests of executives, and I can leverage that to bridge connections in unexpected ways that drive success and successful hires. Um, and it can be anything. It could be that uh, somebody juggled fire. Um, it could be that uh, people went to Brown University or that they're Olympians, and you will see me connect talent in different ways. And always, um, there is some sort of interesting impact. So All right, Elizabeth, I'm gonna transition towards our section, which we call talent rules. And so I wanna okay. know who your best hire is and why. I mean, I would say, Kelly, you and JR were really impactful at Pendo. If I look at one plus one there, that impact, bringing the two of you over and then being able to bring in another 10 executives because of the the relationship, the trust, the synergies that we had, that's a huge win for Pendo, which you know, I'm not sure where they are in terms of scale, but that was an interesting one for sure. We had um, another company, they're now exited, and um, 
the CEO had looked for a long time to fill out his team. We brought in, there's two execs that are interesting there. One was his CHRO. That CHRO was definitely that ungettable talent who had worked for Elon for such a long time Hmm. and pulled him out of Tesla where he'd scaled that company and brought him over to Livongo, was the name of the company. And then with him, I worked again they needed to hire a CMO. The company was scaling up to go out, and that CEO wanted to have a storyteller, a brand builder to partner with and also to go on road shows with and ensure that the messaging was clearly articulated and that they were um, exciting Wall Street, basically. Um, I pulled someone out that I had known for a very long time. Uh, she had a different background, no healthcare background. This company has a healthcare background, but she had worked with Steve Jobs early on and she'd gone into every sector. She'd been the uh, um, executive at Disney Interactive, but a failing division of Disney. And, um, and wherever she went, she was able to drive success. I pulled her out of her situation, put her into Livongo. Uh, Livongo scaled up and out through Exit. Uh, I think the valuation hit 18 billion and then they merged with a company called Teladoc. And then I saw the valuation at the highest, maybe around 40 billion. Um, And she was there for that journey uh, and building out that team. And, you know, why is she my favorite here? Not only because she helped to drive value for Livongo, they were a company of consequence. I was proud of that. But also, I think she was someone that, You know, personally, she was a single mother of two girls. And financially, I think that changed her life in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, And yeah, I I mean, I'm not I'm I'm in this to to drive outcomes for our portfolio companies. But if I can do good while I'm doing so, all the better. So that was that was exciting to to know that we had that kind of impact. That's so cool. That's awesome. That is very cool. And then I also want to know, what is your favorite interview question or actually reference question, because you mentioned that earlier, that gives you the best signal on candidates? I should share my reference questions with you, too, because they're good. Um, You know, two reference questions that I like. One is on a one to ten scale. How would you compare this candidate to other leaders that you have worked with? in his or her function. And then the next question is, what would take him or her from whatever that score is to a point or more above that? So what would improve their score by 10% or one point? That tells you a lot. In terms of interview questions, uh, I love to ask people, what do you want me to know about you that I'm not going to find on LinkedIn or I'm not going to find on your resume. And I think, you know, I hear um, sometimes people will share bits about themselves that, you know, show their passion, show their resiliency, show their smarts, you know, give somebody that's that's um, got the drive the option to learn, they can learn a domain. But I think some of the soft skills are 
not teachable or it is harder to teach them. And so I'm looking for that when I'm asking these questions. Yeah, I love I love the uh, the notion of unteachables. And I firmly believe that there are a set of skills that you can learn and a set of skills in which you are born with. And I actually think leadership is one of those you're born with it skill. And if you're not born with it, you can get to like decent enough, but yep. you'll never be this iconic leader that people want to follow. That's something that that is born in you. That's my belief. That's interesting. Well, so I'm going to ask you this then, Nolan. What do you think? What do you think the quality of a great leader is that I should be looking for in, you know, exec candidates at Sapphire? Yeah, I think the first thing is, is that they have to be world class at the job. And specifically, mm -hmm. they have to be able to fly around at 70,000 feet and then also in the dirt. Um, mm -hmm. I also think they need to be an incredible storyteller and be able to motivate mm -hmm. people with stories. Um, those are my, mm -hmm. That's my two things. I'll tell you what Henry said at Carta, who's the CEO of Carta. Great execs. Great, he has a framework for it, which is great execs must know what to do, how mm -hmm. to do it, to get other people to do it, and must be a great role model for the company. Okay. But what about why? So did he did he look at the why behind it too? I, I think his why, you'd have to ask him, but my interpretation was his why is like, if you don't know what to do, which is the first principle, then mm -hmm. we're not talking, like it's just like an erroneous conversation. Knowing how to do it is usually when people start to mess up because you could take a playbook or something that you saw from another company and like he mm -hmm. wants the level of person who knows what to do and then how to do it. Getting other people to do it actually is the leadership mm -hmm. why. Like, can you actually yeah. motivate your team to do it, especially when things are hard or you're facing adversity? And then he yeah. wanted to work with people that could inspire others in the company, people that could be role mm -hmm. models for mm -hmm. others in the company as they grew into their careers. So I think that's that, that's mm -hmm. the thing underneath the thing. So Elizabeth, good. this was so amazing. Good. Thank you so much <laughs> for your time. Thank you. I'm honored. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.